and welcome to a very special edition of the Canucks Hour with Thomas Drance and usually Jamie Dodd, although today it is a solo Canucks Hour. All Drance for the next 50 minutes on your airwaves. I apologize in advance. Now I'm pre-recording this because as you're listening to this podcast, I am on my way to Pittsburgh. I'll be on with the Canucks on this upcoming road trip uh, through Pittsburgh, Columbus for American Thanksgiving, Boston. Uh, a favorite town of mine. I'll eat some good seafood and then Montreal and Ottawa and then back home. So uh, I'm on my way east and Jamie is off today. As such, you're getting a pre-recorded mailbag edition of the Canucks Hour. Now, today's an interesting one because the Canucks have now lost a lot of games in a row, right? I mean, they've lost 10 of their last 13. Uh, they only won one game on this most recent three-game homestand that's on the heels of a three-game losing streak that's on the heels of a two four and one homestand to open the season not great in Canucks nation and that's made the organization the focus of intense scrutiny both within this market and without and and honestly I do feel like we're at a point where what happens next for the Canucks is uniquely unpredictable so made some calls today because I'm pre-recording just ask around you know, uh, should I be worried? Should I be couching what I'm saying? Is something happening today? And and those who would know don't expect anything to occur today. But again, this is such an unpredictable situation because of how poorly the club is played and because we know that ownership is looking closely at what, what's gone down. Uh, if you listen to Elliot Friedman and the 32 Thoughts podcast uh, today that ran this morning, you know, he described an organization that's fractured into factions uh, that matches a lot of what I'm hearing, including that, that perhaps some of the disagreement on how to proceed extends even beyond and above hockey operations. And at the ownership level, uh, there were whispers in the marketplace that the organization internally was preparing for some kind of termination over the weekend. Uh, to this point that hasn't come to pass. It's really tough to parse where exactly the club is at, in part because I don't think we have a good sense of the precise mechanics that ownership is working through in making a decision. And also in part because I do think, and I do think this was telegraphed with how things went down last week with the ownership meetings being reported and then ownership meetings involving hockey operations and other key leadership, that ideally, ideally this club would prefer to leg out at least much of this season with the leadership group they installed or at least maintained over this past offseason, all of which puts a, a sort of spotlight too on the vacant position of president, a, a job no one has held down within the Canucks organization since Lyndon's departure. Could bringing in a president be a way to maintain the status quo and take or buy time for ownership to figure out exactly what's next? That's sort of a big question looming, you know, not not just within industry circles, not just within the chattering classes in the in the Vancouver hockey market, but also, you know, uh, as you sort of think through what's next for this club, I do think that's a situation to watch. All right, let's open up the mailbag and get to it. Hopefully what I just recorded is still relevant <laughs> when you hear this at 11 a.m. All right. So we're going to open up the mailbag and get to a bunch of questions. I opened this up on Twitter yesterday uh, and we got a huge response, like 100 plus questions, although a lot of them were, since we solicited questions post-game, a lot of them were just from people who were really angry. <laughs> Fair enough. 
So here's a, here's an example of that from a, a gentleman named Dan Verlinden, DVDL88 on Twitter. Why did I become a Canucks fan? You know, Canucks fandom has always been a little bit miserable, uh, to be totally honest with you. And I think a lot of Canucks fans, like if you're 30, if you're a millennial Canucks fan, right? You went through and you had Beret as a child and you had a, a Stanley Cup run when you were between the ages of five and 12, right? That was incredible. Then you had the West Coast Express era, sort of. I mean, the Messier era came and went, and you were kind of too young to be truly hurt by it. Like, you knew it wasn't good, but you didn't quite understand, you know, the hopelessness of, of getting really excited about the NHL prospects of Bill McCult. You know, like you, you, that didn't hurt you. Then, then the West Coast Express is playing when you're in high school. That was scintillating. I mean, yeah, there was no playoff success, but that actually – the lack of playoff success actually helped you, actually helped you internalize the, the necessary fatalism and nihilism required to be a hockey fan in the Vancouver market. And then by the time you're in your early 20s, you know, you're falling in love, you're starting your career. You had the Sedin era. You had literally the golden era of Canucks hockey from 08 to 2012, roughly, right? And so you were spoiled. You were spoiled. And then you get to these last eight years and... Yeah, there's not a lot to write home about. It's been it's been brutal. It's been really tough to watch. And to top it all off, if you bought in on the ground floor and supported the rebuilding team through its leanest years and argued about Gold Dobin and other stuff like that, I mean, what's the payoff? The payoff's this? That's, I think, why you're seeing so much anger in the market. That's why you're seeing, you know, signs of protest at games, even if we haven't seen a fully-fledged conflagration of recrimination at Rogers Arena to this point, more just sort of scatterings of, of boos and signs and chants calling for the general manager's job. But, you know, I, I think when you look through the, the last eight years and the lack of patience, I, I don't even think it's necessarily about the results of this season. It's about the fact that so many in this market despite being told that this market wasn't patient enough for a rebuild, actually stuck with the team through all these lean years and bought into the, the prospects of, you know, iffy prospects, guys like Goldobin, guys like Jonathan Dolan, guys like Colin, guys like Jonah Gajevich. And then, you know, you, you sort of pull out of it. The team makes a bunch of all-in moves and they're still bad. In fact, they don't seem improved. Um, you know, I think that's a big part of why you're seeing so much frustration. And this is new for Canucks fans. I mean, it is, you know, as bad as the seventies and the eighties were when the club was, you know, sort of the LA Clippers of hockey, as it were from 1990 through to 2014, 15, right. For 25 years over the course of a generation, the Canucks were a top five offensive team in hockey. They only ate franchises in the NHL won more games than the Canucks did over that generational span. Canucks fans got used to having a relevant team that scored a lot, even if they didn't have playoff success. So, you know, to go from that to what we've now experienced in this market over the last decade, yeah, it's tough. And there's an awful lot of upset fans for good reason. I also got a lot of questions in this mold. Who would be your ideal combo of president of hockey ops, GM, and head coach of those who are currently available? Or who would, who would you target to potentially recruit from another team? I got a lot of questions like this. And as I sort of sift through what, what I think the club needs to do, you know, they, they did sort of build in a succession plan 
around Henrik and Daniel Sedin. And I still think that's wise. You know, I, I think Henrik and Daniel could have been if they were, you know, more, if they were more involved, like if they were more involved and if they had less, like a, a, a more selfish sense of themselves, right? I think they could have been handed the keys to the organization this past summer, but they're so smart and so balanced that they wanted to take it slow. They know what they don't know. And that's something that this organization could use a lot of. So anyone that you bring in, I think it needs to be someone who the twins are comfortable working with. And, and honestly, as the organization figures out what to do, figures out if this is tenable, figures out what's next, you know, I didn't list the twins. I didn't list the twins. They know a ton of people around the NHL. They're extremely, like they're emotional, their EQ, not just their hockey IQ, but their EQ as human beings is through the roof. Um, you know, that to me, those gentlemen, that's the key. Those, let those guys lead the search for what's next. Listen to those guys' recommendation. And, and you know, I don't want to fall into the boys on the bus, like Edmonton Oilers trap. I just think the twins are special people. They are to this organization as John Beliveau was to the Habs you know, years and years ago or, or four years and years. And, you know, I, I think the Canucks have internally a really useful twosome with a deep Rolodex of content contacts, uh, an understanding of sort of what the cultural issues they've now had a chance to see this mess up close over the course of the past few months. And they are the guys that I would enlist. Like, again, I, I, I'd want to create ultimately a organization that allows them to find their way, but it's not ne even necessarily about finding someone they're comfortable with to continue learning from. It's like right now, use their emotional intelligence to evaluate, you know, what your options are and who's the best fit to go to, and then let them go back to learning the job by being around the Abbotsford Canucks and figuring out what they want next. I mean, for me, that is a no brainer. And, you know, beyond that, the only thing I'd say is I do think that the Canucks still run, run really lean as an organization. Um, you know, they have the general manager in Jim Benning, but there's no president above him. They have two assistant general managers in Chris Gear and John Weisbrod. But, you know, I think these days you kind of need four. Um, they have uh, Jonathan Wall, who's the executive director of, of analytics and um, you know, he's got, uh, uh, he also is their primary capologist. So, you know, I think the, it's hockey operations and analytics is the title, excuse me. And I think he's got the profile of like an assistant general manager, but that still leaves you at least a body short, like, like a director of player personnel type voice for the organization. That's another role the club doesn't currently have. We know that Todd Harvey is their top amateur scout but I, I don't get the sense that the pro scouting department although there's you know people who are very well regarded within the industry within that department including guys like brett henning guys like neil komodowski um you know i, I don't think think i get i don't get the sense that there's a pro scouting voice with a ton of weight internally within the canucks organization so you know i, I think they just need bodies in addition to everything else uh, you know ryan johnson runs the american league team but Perhaps he could be that player director of player personnel type voice too if his portfolio were expanded. Either way, I do think in a dynamic organization, you need more bodies and more voices and more diversity of opinion and then a more dynamic collaborative process than what I have an understanding of what the Canucks do have currently as, as function these days. All right. 
there is a lot of questions calling for Jim Benning's job. We're not going to get into that because I feel like I just did. Um, you know, there was a question about if you were to describe this team, asked Hockey Rush One in two words, how would you describe them? <laughs> I think I think the first word that I'd use would be an adjective like woefully. You know, I got to use something that that you need a thesaurus to check out, right? So woefully. And then I'd go with something like overmatched. Like they're woefully overmatched. They're not just overmatched. They're woefully overmatched. And and as I look through this team and I note that the penalty kill has been historically bad and I consider that their top players bear some responsibility because players like Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser and Bo Horvat, um, you know, haven't been near, near their best to this point in the season. And as I look at the fact that even Thatcher Demko has not been at his best over the past 10 days, I still come back to the blue line. I still come back to the blue line and think there's no way, there's no way an NHL team can harbor realistic playoff ambitions with a blue line of this quality. You know, it, it honestly baffles me. I, I just look at Tucker Pullman and even on the, you know, uh, one of those Blackhawks or I think it was the Blackhawks goal. There's a sequence right before it where, you know, Tucker Pullman can't keep the puck in. He's not even close to keeping the puck in. It goes down the length of the ice. The Chicago forecheck is activated. They get two scoring chances and finally set up the draw that leads to Hagel's goal. And it's just this slow accumulation of puck handling errors that cost the Canucks possession. And in this league, like hockey is a weak link sport. In this league, when you have a guy who does that consistently, it just puts you so far behind the eight ball time and time again. And, and this Canucks team's not good enough to overcome those deficiencies. I, you know, I think about Travis Hamannick and the fact that he's clearly the best option on their top pair with Quinn Hughes. And then I watch him move the puck and I'm like, this is a third pair guy. This is a third pair guy. You know, Oliver Ekman Larson is a classy player. Like he's a classy defenseman, um, a really good second pair lefty. But at his price point, he's not an efficient piece for this organization. Like he's the offense or he's the offseason move, you know, uh, along with Garland. And, and they were the same offseason move that probably worked out best for the Canucks. And, and, you know, I still see a $5 million player as opposed to a $7.25 million player. And that's when he's, you know, as good as he was on Friday night when the Canucks won the one game they won this homestand where I, I'm just watching him even do subtle things like changing the angles on the wrist shots that he's sending on net from the point. And it's deviously intelligent, right? Just like the details in his game as a puck mover, when he's playing aggressive defensively, you know, he's just really good. He's really classy, but he's a finishing piece that an organization should be looking to add to get them over the top for a team that's still building or should have been still building like the Canucks were. I just don't see him as the type of defender that moves the needle. Then you get to Myers and, you know, it's the same story. You know, I, I sort of see him as a four or five, like a fringe top four quality defender. Uh, there's utility there, but I just don't see a top four, an everyday top four guy. And, and by the time we've gone through this, you know, you're left with two top pair defensemen or top, top four quality defensemen in Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson. 
and and a bunch of third pair guys, several of whom were overpaid by a factor of, you know, two or three times what what they're probably worth on an, on an efficient team. And I, you, you're never going to win with that. You're never going to win with two top four quality defensemen in the league ever, ever. And so woefully overmatched. That's what I come back to for the Canucks. I have a question about Oliver Ekman. So here, I had a lot of questions like this, but this one's from, and and excuse me if I say the name wrong, but it's Trevor uh, Petrinchuk, and that's at Trevor, a.k.a. Petrie on Twitter. And he asked me, and I got a variation of this question from several of you. EP40 on the PK, yay or nay? Question mark. Now, I think the way to look at this or the way I'm going to spin this question is a little bit more generally. Like, why do the Canucks top players not play on the penalty kill? And when we talk about that, we talk about not just Pedersen, we talk about Bo Horvat, right? Who spent a lot of time on the PK in Travis Green's tenure earlier on, struggled enormously and hasn't really gotten a, a steady shot since, although he sometimes comes on to win draws because the Canucks just kind of don't have anyone else who can win them. We're talking about Niels Hoagland, or we're talking about Vasily Podkolzin. We're talking about a run of skilled players that the Canucks just like. The Canucks don't have that linchpin second line winger or center who also is an elite penalty killer, and that's a significant team construction issue. One that makes it incumbent that the Canucks dress fourth liners who can kill penalties. So that sort of limits the ceiling or the offensive ceiling of your bottom six, and also just hurts your PK in general because you have lesser players on the ice more often over the course of a 60-minute game than teams that are able to throw Mitch Marner or Brad Marchand out there, right? I mean, it's a huge disadvantage. So Pedersen on the penalty kill is, you know, there's sort of three things that I think you need to think of. The first is, is that he doesn't actually help the Canucks win draws right now, right? It's not good enough in the circle. The five-on-four or the four-on-five draws that teams take shorthanded are the hardest ones to win because a they they're mostly happening in the defensive zone and the defensive center has to show their uh, has to have their stick down first so they're showing they're showing their cards basically you know you're trying to win a poker game against a guy and your your, your two cards and hold them are face up right like that that's, that's the situation right off the hop the league has done everything they can to legislate against the jay beagles of the world they know that no one wants to pay to watch a Jay Beagle, right? Like they know that. So they legislate against these guys. And one of the ways they do so is the defensive zone draw is hard to hard to win because the, you know, and this happened three, four years ago, the defensive drawman has to show his cards first, has to put his stick down first. So that makes it hard. Pedersen doesn't win draws. He is ideally a center. If he was a 55% guy, I think they'd have already tried it because that's how desperate they are to, to get a draw one in the um you know in their own end when they're shorthand so that's the first element the second element i think is you know the fact that Pedersen's such a perfectionist and how he goes about his business now obviously um you know perfection hasn't been something that he's achieved on a consistent basis this season but that doesn't change the fact that for Pedersen the way he processes the game is so high end and his expectations are so high end and he's such a you know, savant, he's so dedicated to figuring out how things work that he just reliably tries to get it right. And not just right, like perfect, whatever he's doing. I mean, his shot broken down into 12 segments to, to master it. 
uh, the way that he sees the game. Everything he does needs to be done the right way. Now, in a stationary defensive situation, right? In a stationary defensive situation, playing the right way means selling out to block shots sometimes, right? It means not flamingoing because you're the best player or the best forward on this team. And if you get hurt, the team's kind of sunk, right? It means going all out and risking injury. And I think there's an awareness internally that if Pedersen was put in a four on five situation, he'd do all that. He, he wouldn't have the overall selfishness to pull up because, Hey, like I have to pick and choose here. You know, I, I can't get hurt. They don't want me to get hurt blocking a shot. That's not the best use of our team's resources. And, and as such, I think there's a huge injury risk that, that I think the club is typically speaking, um, you know, reluctant to, to take when it comes to EP40. And then here's the, here's the last part. And this sort of applies more generally. What we see so often and, and what shows best on TV, to be totally honest with you for fans, you know, a player that wins a lot of battles, like a Niels Hoaglander looks like they're a sturdy two way piece. The analytics on them are sturdy too, because they spend more time in the offensive end, but that does not mean that their skills are well suited to stationary defensive play. Right. I mean, it doesn't. And, and in Hoaglander's case, you know, there's a lot of talk like, Oh, he's so relentless. He's so relentless. Like he should be on the PK and he is, and this is taking nothing away from him. But in fact, when you look at the subtleties of, of the lanes that he's in, and how effective he is at cutting off the top, you know, in terms of in-zone defensive play, you know, he, he's the, the skills that lend itself to killing penalties are not the skills that he has that are most advanced in his game at this point. Um, you know, Vasily Podkolzin to me is a guy who I, I think the club should be starting to train to kill penalties for sure, because I think he's going to have that skill set. He's already improved so much. And I mean, from the start of the season where he was regularly turning the back on puck carriers in the defensive end, because that's what good defense looks like in Europe to now where he looks like an absolute hound dog, even without the puck, um, you know, a mammoth improvement to me, I'd like to see the club harness that, but you can understand wh why they'd be reluctant to do so while they're scuffling, um, you know, with, with Pedersen. Uh, I mean, I, I think overall his anticipation is super high end, but you know, I think he'd get penalties if he could win a draw and if the club was less concerned about the injuries that he sustains. So Pedersen's actually the guy I think we are most likely to see four on five going forward at some point down the line, maybe pod Colson once they train him up. I do think overall though, when you look at Horvat and Hoaglander, you know, you see the battles, you see their assertiveness, you see, you know, the, the passion that they can occasionally bring when they're on um, you know, and they usually bring it. It's just that the club's been so abysmal of late. But, um, you know, I, I think it's easy to confuse that with the club's overall sort of need for guys who can handle the stationary defensive aspect of the game. And, and some of those guys just aren't good candidates, which I do think complicates the overall decision. I'm going to get to one more before we go to break because I'm going to get to it quickly. It's from at W Reads, and he asks, are there any credible GM candidates who would take the job in Vancouver or is the position just simply I never would consider because of ownership's meddling? And I get this talking point here and there on social media. And I just want to say there are 32 NHL GM jobs. They are highly coveted. Vancouver is an incredible hockey city. This is one of the best jobs in hockey. 
there would be no question that, that people would be lining up, politicking to get this job. Do not confuse yourself about the challenges that are posed by ownership. Like this is, this would be a highly desirable job around or in league circles. Um, you know, even, even if executives came in with their eyes wide open about some of the challenges that they'd face in terms of managing up. All right. That does it for part one of the mailbag. Let's cut to break. We'll come back on the other side with more of your questions. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. I'm Thomas Drance. Jamie Dodd is on vacation. And we are doing a special pre-recorded mailbag episode for our listeners' pleasure. So I got a question from Lee Powell. and That's at Lee Powell ST. And it was a question that I was only sent once, not nine times in a row at 2 a.m. So uh, congratulations, Lee. I appreciate that. But, but it's a good one because it's actually revealing of a pretty interesting split overall in this market. Lee asks... How would you describe Bo Horvat's performance over the last 10 to 12 games? And I see in here Bo Horvat getting a fair bit of criticism in the market right now in a way that we've never seen before from the Canucks captain. Um, You know, Horvat's one of those guys who reliably raises his game, who deals with the media scrutiny and says the right thing with a level of consistency that's super rare in this market, but also across the NHL. Um, you know, and as such, and as, as because of the fact that he was sort of the, the first young guy that this market had high hopes for over the depths of this rebuild, you know, he's been relatively insulated from criticism, but now he wears the seat and now this season's gone off the rails and this season's gone off the rails in a way that, you know, unlike in 2021, fans aren't pointing ownership or pointing to management or pointing to, you know, a COVID outbreak to explain it, right? This time the microscope is really on the players. Now, how would I rate Horvat's performance over the last 10 to 12 games? Honestly, I think he's been really good. <laughs> I do. I think Horvat's been probably Vancouver's best two-way forward over the course of these games. Um, you know, I look at sort of the underlying numbers dating back 10 games and the Canucks have outshot their opponents by 14 with Horvat on the ice. They have, you know, 19 additional scoring chances more than their opponents have. Um, by expected goals, he should be plus one. But by actual goals, he's minus one. And the reason for that is that over the course of these last 10 games, at five on five, Horvat's carrying an on-ice shooting percentage below 4%. In fact, below 3.5%. So he's been really lucky, off, uh, unlucky offensively at evens over the course of the last 10 games. And I think that means you're seeing less of the big moments you're having less reasons to fit pump your fist while watching Horvat play I mean you're having less reasons to pump your fist in general watching the Canucks play but Horvat in particular is not getting that like emotional release goal where he reminds you like oh this is the guy who steps up like this is the guy who when you need a goal down you know and you're down by one and there's five minutes left you know he's going to manufacture single-handedly some type of scoring chance with a bull rush right he hasn't had as many of those moments convert and I think that's colored in addition to the more complicated sort of status that he holds right now because he's captain, because the team is struggling. I think that's sort of commingling into a line of criticism that actually is at odds with his form. In terms of his two-way game, he's actually right where you'd want him to be. He's actually playing better over the last 10 than he was in the first few, the first road trip plus of this Canucks season. 
And, you know, I'd sort of look at him as a guy who's due to see more goals start to go in when he's on the ice. And we'll see if a, those goals are timely enough to help the Canucks sort of win some games on this upcoming road trip. And B, if that, how that changes the conversation around him. Um, Yerky 21 asks, is it fair to challenge the fans to show dismay at the games? If it's just going to be so fast anyway, <laughs> and it's an interesting dynamic, but I mean, I don't know that anyone challenging the fans to show their dismay at the game. I think it's more that fans feel the need to do so. Um, you know, it did seem that there was some piped in arena noise. Certainly the gentleman with the drum that starts the go Canucks go chance was, uh, you know, heard from more often this last three games at Rogers arena than I'd ever heard them previously even showed up at some of the sections where, where the uh, chance calling for Benning's job were, were occurring. And you can go find the TikTok video where it's literally like competing chance, go Canucks go and, and the chance calling for Benning's job. It, it's, it was quite something. Uh, and look, the atmosphere was quite something, right? I mean, it, it was unlike anything I've ever seen, even though again, it was sort of in pockets as opposed to more generally expressed. And, and I do think the fact that they were all close games, they were all one goal games, really, and, you know, when you factor out empty nets, um, you know, I do think that that had a major impact, too, on keeping fans invested more in the on-ice product than showing their dismay. Um, look, I, I, think, I think there's no wrong way to be a fan if you want to show up and protest, if you want to show up and just have a, have a fun night out. I mean, that's up to you. And I, and I sort of think of the one fan, right? I, I was looking through my binoculars at various signs throughout the game when the Canucks first got back. So this is the game against the Colorado Avalanche on Wednesday last week. And I was using my binoculars to sort of look through and figure out exactly where, you know, different sort of types of fans were and read all the different signs and get a sense of exactly where the market was at in terms of the mood in arena. And I saw one fan with a big white Bristol board and on the big white Bristol board written in rainbow letters was, we love hockey. <laughs> and it was just this reminder to me that, you know, for all of the people who've got the Mad Magazine style fold-up signs to disguise their true intent, you know, there's fans that just go to games to have a fun night out and be entertained. It's a, it's a diversion. And, you know, I have no problem with fans enjoying the game that way. I have no problem with fans enjoying the game by trying to, you know, trying to protest and have their feelings known, make their feelings known. And so, um, you know, there's no wrong way to do it, but an organization is always going to do their best to protect their people. That's what a team is. I've been on the other side of that. Um, so I, so I know how it goes and I don't begrudge um, the organization for approaching things in that way either, nor do I think it should be a big story for, for fans. Like that's part of what you're going to encounter is some soft resistance, some, efforts to make sure to minimize the chance, um, you know, and, and hopefully some efforts on the ice, right. To sort of minimize them too, by performing at least well, at least better than the club has to this point in the season. I had a question from puck, puck, Erglen, pucker Glenn and pucker Glenn asks, what do you make of the Mike Ford situation? And what are your thoughts on his interview on 32 thoughts to me? Everything that guy came up with reminded me of the guy the Canucks already had nine years ago and there, there he's referring to Mike Gillis. Um, I think the interesting part to note about any similarities between Ford and, and 
comments made previously by Gillis or since by Gillis, like one thing that's interesting to note is they've had a relationship for 15 years. So if you're hearing echoes of, of, of Gillis type thinking in, in that Mike Ford interview, I mean, they, they probably chatted about it, right? Like there's probably, that's probably not a coincidence. There's a longstanding relationship there. Uh, in terms of Mike Ford, you know, he did run the search in New Jersey and that search ultimately created, you know, they, they landed Tom Fitzgerald, but it seemed like they went to a variety of different names before that. Um, you know, John Chaka, the, the LaFerre Chaka got care, caught up in that. You know, I, I sort of was asking around because I was like, how, how, how much should this guy be uh, an exciting prospect to Canucks fans because he speaks well, but he led a search that landed on John Chaka. I mean, that doesn't sound all that promising to me. I, I, I don't think Chaka had a particularly good run in the, in the desert. And I was told a couple of things. One is I was told that there was actually a recommendation for the position, which was above general manager. It was a more general like Harris sports president position. There was an offer made to someone else within the industry before Cheka. He wasn't necessarily a first recommendation. Um, and when it was declined, Cheka apparently was sort of a little bit further down the list. Additionally, you know, I don't know how much, and there is some skepticism within the industry about how much, the Harris Group, which owns the New Jersey Devils, ultimately took Ford's recommendations for both the positions that he was involved in hiring. So, you know, that sort of opened my eyes a little bit in terms of what, you know, to, to separate the results that Ford had in his initial dalliances in the NHL, because he's got a ton of experience in the EPL and the, in the NBA with some of what I'd heard about him and, and what I've heard about him within the industry, especially the fact that he's close with RC Buford, the legendary general manager of the San Antonio Spurs. Um, you know, Mark Cuban has used him extensively. Um, he's obviously got a you know ton of respect from, high-level NBA circles, and then you hear him talk, you know, I do think this is a progressive guy, an interesting guy, and if he ends up being involved in the situation in Vancouver, you know, I do think that will help create a set of considerations and names that otherwise might not be at the top of the radar, particularly for an organization that's tended to be as obsessed with landing the splashy name as opposed to the right name, the way the Vancouver Canucks have on occasion over the course of the Aquilini stewardship of the club. Now I got a lot of questions about Elias Pettersson's struggles and I'm going to, I'm going to read this one from pod goals in 92 who says, can we officially now say that PD is Ericsson 2.0 and that's got to be the absolute most negative spin you could possibly put on Pettersson's slow start. The answer is of course is no. I mean, no, like what? They're not even the same player. There's not no similarity between Erickson and Pedersen. How concerned am I about Pedersen's struggles? Very, obviously. You never like to see a guy struggle for this long, you know, and, and it has been a long time. I mean, we are at 17, 18 games, you know, we're, we're at a good portion of the season now. And, you know, he just doesn't look quite like the player that he has in the past. I still suspect that he's working through some rust and some timing issues. And I think he's rusty. And when he has timing issues, I think it is magnified because Pedersen's not the fastest guy and he's not the biggest guy. 
he relies on being the smartest guy all the time, right? He relies on having this preternatural hockey IQ that allows him to stay ahead of defenders, allows him to stay away from checks, allows him to be a step ahead of the game constantly. And when Pedersen's at his best, he's taking over games because he's consistently that step or two ahead. Um, you know, I'd add to that one thing that Pedersen's had traditionally is this competitive core of steel that allowed him to appear to be outworking his opposition. There was a discipline with which he had headed to the net, no matter what, just like, ah, get to the net. Things are breaking down. I'll just get to the net. Um, he was opportunistic as a result. Um, when he lost the puck, he'd compete like mad to get it back right away. That was the point part of his game that actually earned him comparisons to Gretzky from Gretzky himself. And I do think we're seeing a little bit less of that, which, which to me is the biggest concern. There's, there's a almost a air of discouragement around him at the moment. That to me is the bigger concern than the other stuff, than the lack of production, than the, you know, overall fact that he appears to be getting tagged more often by bigger players, because, because to me, that's rust to me. That's, he needs to get back in terms of his, you know, processing of the game to where he was. And, and I just think he's so precise when he's on and when he's off, it all sort of looks different. And, and my guess is, is that impacts his confidence and that impacts to some extent too, although it's no excuse, some of the, you know, competitive excellence that we've seen from him in the past and maybe not seen from him this season. So that's sort of my overall take on Pedersen. I'm still not worried. I still believe that if you come into this league and are a 0.9 points per game player over 185 games, including a playoff run that sees your club win two rounds and your point per game through that, you know, I think we've seen enough to know that you are a special player of some variety. At the very least, a, a top-line quality center probably for a decade. Um, what we've seen has persisted for long enough that I do think it poses some real questions about whether or not Pedersen is you know, going to be a franchise player. And he wasn't quite a franchise player, but I always sort of saw him as a guy with potential to get there. I still see that. I still see him as having potential potential to get to that franchise level but i do think it's um the struggles over the past you know two months anyway since he returned from injury since he missed camp you know i do think that the struggles have persisted for long enough that that it does pose some difficult questions about what his ultimate ceiling is um you know i still believe in the player i still think he's an incredible um centerman i still think he's an incredible talent the skill is just so evident and even when he's just off a little bit, uh, you know, I, I still see so much to like in his game. I just want to see that sort of competitiveness, that's that core of steel come back. If I see that come back, uh, you know, then I think everything else will follow. So going to be interesting to watch and track his progression over the course of the year and to see what impact it might make should the organization make some changes. All right. Jared Hammond, that's at Hammond Jared on Twitter, asks, what trade value does Tyler Myers have? The M modified NTC doesn't make it easier, he notes quite rightly. Um, you know, I think we're going to start having these conversations more and more, particularly if this season continues to go off the rails, right? And by the way, I just want to add, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a fait accompli in terms of, you know, I don't think this team's making the playoffs, don't get me wrong. But they're going on this road trip and they're facing some pretty light competition over the course of the trip, other than Boston. It's conceivable that they'll win four or th at least three of these next five games. Now, if they don't, 
that's an indictment. But but should they rally a bit and win four out of five or whatever, you know, they'll come home and the market will feel pretty different than it does right now. And yet, and I think this is important to note, I don't think that winning four of the next five would in any way meaningfully change what this club ceiling is, which is not nearly high enough for all the assets that have been pushed into the middle of the table and for all the time spent assembling and rebuilding this club and, and not aggressively or, or, you know, rebuilding with any discipline, just being bad long enough that the club had a ton of high picks, you know, even if this club goes on, on a run and wins five of six or something like that, I think we've all seen enough to know that this club and particularly the blue line and just particularly the construction is nowhere near good enough. And, and I think it's important to not overreact to results one way or the other, you know, we've seen enough, from the Canucks in terms of their form that it doesn't really matter that they've struggled so much. Although of course that matters the most it, so much as we know that this team's not going anywhere because we watch them play and we know it's not good enough. And even if they reel off a bunch of wins, there's going to be voices in the market that are like, see, it's now clicking. They had all these new bodies and now they're all, you know, on the same page. No, this team's not good enough either, either way. Like, even if they win a bunch of games here, we're going to know what this team is. And what this team is, is at best a fringe playoff team with very few prospects, a ton of chips pushed into the middle, a bunch of bad deals uh, on the books that'll make it difficult to improve. And, you know, that's not enough payoff. It's not enough payoff for all the pain that this market has endured to get to this point in the wake of the, you know, 2011 cores disassembly. All right. That's a digression. But back to Tyler Myers. I think Tyler Myers could be moved. Um, and I think he could be moved for a decent amount of value. Like, I think he'd have actual hockey value. I think you could move him in a hockey trade. I don't think you'd have to do a Roussel Beagle Erickson salary dump. And here's here's the key things to remember about Myers. First off, he's only earning $2 million in salary this year because he's already been paid a $5 million signing bonus on a $6 million cap hit. So he's actually a pretty valuable piece for some teams that prefer to be budget conscious uh, right now. Then next year, he makes five with a cap hit of six. So again, he's lower than his cap hit. And then the next year, he's got a $5 million signing bonus and a $1 million base. So he's at $6 million. But But over the course of, if, if a team was to acquire Tyler Myers right now, right, they would save $5 million versus his cap hit. In actual salary. And that and that sort of helps lubricate some trades with some organizations. Like that makes Tyler Myers a potential um, you know, problem, like not not a problem, but a um solution to a problem for some budget conscious teams. Now, having said all of that, if Myers can maintain his game just at the level it's at, right, for another season right through through this year and then through the 2022-23 season right you get to an off season where miller and horvat are expiring and re reappropriating myers's money would be pretty useful if you intended to sign those guys now that's the year where he actually will have real trade value and here's why if he maintains his game to the point that there are still teams around the nhl that see him as a second pair guy right he will have a 5 million dollar signing bonus paid to him in July or September, I'm not exactly sure when his date is, but it's probably September 15th, based on how this organization typically does signing bonuses. He'll have $5 million signing bonus paid to him prior to the year. And then 
only be due 1 million in base salary the rest of the way. Uh, to me, that is the opportunity. Like that's the opportunity where, you know, Myers would be extremely attractive to a whole host of clubs that may be going for it or, or seeking to upgrade their defense or looking for some veteran leadership at that point. That is, that is the window to trade Myers. So uh, while I think Myers retains some value, there are pockets over the course of this next contract where he'll have actual value that, that could be pretty high just because of the structure of his deal. I had a question that I want to get to, and it was from Z.A. Klein on Twitter. And he asks me, ironically, I'm sure, because this is where Canucks fans are at this season, but, it, but, it, but I want to get into it anyway. He asks me, Lambert, in reference to the prospect Lane Lambert, or Savoie <laughs> in con, uh, you know in reference to Matthew Savoie, uh, both of these guys, of course, are you know top top draft prospects for the 2022 NHL entry draft, and that's a reference to you know where this Canucks season is at, right? Should we should we be looking ahead to the draft, and which of these guys should we prefer? And uh, you know Matthew Savoie for me by a narrow margin. Um, he plays for this absolute powerhouse Winnipeg ice team, right? And he's got 32 points in 20 games, but actually hasn't looked good. Like he actually hasn't played that well to the eye test. Um, according to the scouts that I chat with, he's kind of been underwhelming, but to me, you know, an underwhelming player <laughs> who's still producing 32 points over 20 games in the WHL as a 17 year old, um, yeah, sign me up for that. Like, that sounds great. Uh, I love the underperforming guy who's, you know, the underperforming by the eye test guy that's still putting up a ton of points. Um, that's the guy you want. That's always the guy you want. Now, Lambert, according to the eye test folks, um, you know, is one of the fastest skaters and one of the best puck handlers that anyone has seen go through draft process in several years like over the last half decade in terms of the combination of speed and puck skills you know this guy is absolute top of the list from about 2016 on right so i'm not saying mcdavid don't get me like you know no we're not talking mcdavid here we're not talking barzell but we're talking about sort of a class below as a prospect he's got those skills in spades that's exciting and if he goes to the right situation i think he could be a really special player for sure. But, you know, I, I also think there's a lot of players in Liga who have probably played, you know, better. Like that Kemel kid is probably as good a prospect as Lambert, maybe a little bit better. Um, you know, and, and there's really good prospects in the dub too. Like Matichuk is one to keep your eye on. So in terms of Savoie or Lambert, which, you know, a question I also appreciate because it's implying that the Canucks wouldn't win the draft lottery um, from Z.A. Klein. The answer for me anyway is Savoie. All right, we're, we're running out of time here. I'll, I'll get to one last question. And thanks to everyone for participating. We'll definitely do this again. Um, I loved having all these responses, even though, you know, the vast majority of them were, were fatalistic and just filled with rage after another Canucks loss last night. So this one's from Jordan Jennings, Jen at Jennings4. And he says, what's the plan with 3LD, the third pair left defender? They're obviously not going to make Hughes kill, correct? So either Rathbone kills penalties or they ship out Rathbone. How do you see this resolving long term? 
follow-up, why not Hughes PD? Well, we've already addressed that. <laughs> so, as I said, a lot of people wondering why skilled players don't kill penalties for the Canucks. In terms of the Rathbone thing, I think it's a really interesting one. You know, he's down in Abbotsford now. For me, he should be up here. I, I just watched this Canucks team break out the puck and think there is no question that Rathbone's feet and offensive skills are something that the team needs. You know, whether it's Luke Shen or, or Kyle Burrows on the on the left side, um, it's not really working for me. I liked Brad Hunt's last game, the fourth game that he played, uh, the Anaheim game. I thought he played really well. Um, you know, I, I'd have time to see Hunt get back in the lineup. But, you know, I, I do think part of the reason that they haven't gone to that is that it limits their flexibility in terms of penalty killing options. With Burrows in the lineup, you can have a Tyler Myers or an Oliver Ekman Larson kill a penalty, and you still have four available PK type defensemen. If you have Hunt or Rathbone there and don't trust either of them on the PK and also don't trust Hughes, then anytime Myers or, or Ekman Larson or, you know, Hamannick or Pullman take a penalty, you know, then you're short a penalty killing defenseman. Like you literally don't have four the moment a PK guy takes penalty. So, you know, I do think Rathbone needs to be a guy that kills penalties just to play if they're not going to play Hughes. And so, you know, there's two routes that this take. You either train him up in the American League to be a decent penalty killer, and I think he's got the fire in his stomach to do it. I think he's got the intelligence to be able to do it personally. Or, you know, or or you deal him. But the problem with dealing him is that you want him to show what he can do in the NHL for like 100 games if you're going to get max value. Right. I mean, you need him to play in the league to get max value. And, and so navigating this is going to be a really tough balance for the club without question. All right. That's going to do it for us today in today's special and first ever mailbag edition of the Canucks Hour. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned to Sportsnet 650 and all the best. We'll see you tomorrow.